0: Welcome everybody to the fried egg podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today is a bit of a departure from our usual subject matter. We're talking about golf equipment, specifically used golf equipment. I've wanted to do an episode on this subject for a while now, in part because it's pretty hard to get a hold of new golf clubs these days. Obviously, the supply chain debacle has affected every industry And the golf equipment business has not been spared. So I thought it would be interesting and potentially useful to you to talk about how to build a bag of really cool, affordable, used clubs. And I figured that in talking about that, we would end up exploring the history of these clubs, what they represented, and overall how the equipment industry has changed in recent years. So basically when it comes down to it, bread and butter, fried egg stuff. And I have no doubt that the best person to do this experiment with is Ryan Barath. Ryan works for Tour Experience Golf or TXG, which has a popular YouTube channel you might be familiar with. And he's an absolute encyclopedia of golf equipment, especially when you're talking about stuff from the past 25 years or so. He knows everything. So let's get to it. Let's talk equipment. Let's talk used clubs. Here is Ryan Barath.
1: So for me, I was a kid that always took things apart, basically. I was one of those kids. I was lucky. Toaster breaks down, my dad let me rip it apart. Lawnmower breaks down, my dad let me rip it apart. Never had to put it back together, thank goodness. Uh, But for me, it was always being able to kind of get inside of my hobbies. So if I rode a bike or rode a skateboard, I always took those things apart as well. And when it came to golf, the exact same thing happened. And I immediately got hooked on golf equipment, watching the PGA Tour, watching television, Not so much seeing commercials because I know I kind of joke, it always dates me, but like pre-internet, there was golf magazines and club building magazines and I would get these catalogs and I would just comb through them over and over and over again. And for me, that was was kind of the stepping point into equipment. And being a kid, I got my first kind of like knockoff set of golf clubs. And then I always really wanted, you know, for me, an aspirational club at the time was like a Ping I-3 because I guess that would have been... Like, early, like late 90s, right around 2000. Uh, but I didn't realize, because again, the internet really didn't exist. You couldn't find all this information that the i3, the i2 was not the precursor to the i3. There was all these in, irons in between. And because I couldn't, as a 14, 15 year old, could not afford a brand new set of i3s, I bought i2s. And then I kind of learned as I went on all these different elements of like fitting and line angle. And, and because when I got them, they actually didn't fit me very well. Didn't know that at the time and someone helped me with that and from then I was hooked as soon as i realized you could change golf equipment to help it make you play better instantly with something like that i was i was completely hooked into the into the industry and then from there so you
0: this was before you had a job in the equipment industry when you were a kid you were just kind of tinkering with clubs to make them fit you better
1: always tinkering like it was just something i could not i was always trying to figure out a way and i mean i was a decent player i started off as like a high handicap like everybody else And then after a few years, I got down to probably like the mid single digits. And then it was like, I was trying to search for every edge because a lot of the kids I was playing with were better than me. So like anyone, I think any gearhead, any start of the gearhead that kind of gets into golf is like, okay, I've kind of figured it out to a certain point. How can I make my equipment better for me? And then when I went to school, that was when the actual job came into play because I, uh, I started working at a big box retailer.
0: So a few years ago, you were working for Golf WRX, writing articles. Now you're with TXG. Your title is lead content strategist, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, tell me a little bit about TXG, and and tell me about what you're doing there right now.
1: Yeah. So, um, so TXG, we are a custom fitting studio, so a bespoke club fitting studio, and the big thing for us, and a lot of people might be familiar with our YouTube channel, the is that it's all about sharing information. It's about educating people, and you know for me at TXG, again, I, we are there to help people find the best equipment for their bag. And, you know, the best way to describe it is we are a custom tuner shop for golf clubs. So people come in, it's a one-on-one experience and they get to work with one fitter kind of through the entire process from putter to driver using the, 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 basically the highest level of technology, including foresight and Quintic and all these high-speed camera pieces of equipment to help you get dialed in, whether you're, you know, trying to, play on tour or you're trying to break 90. We're here to help everybody play their best golf by making sure their equipment fits them absolutely to the best as possible. Kind of like, you know, you go get fit for a suit. We're going to make sure everything is is just tuned for you. So
0: we are recording this on an interesting day for TXG. There is now a partnership between TXG and Club Champion. But my understanding is that the YouTube channel is going to continue to produce content. And so fans of that are going to continue to get a lot of the same type of content.
1: Our, our goal and our strategy is not changing whatsoever. Uh, we are, when it comes to our club fitting, we're completely brand agnostic. If you come in and you want a specific brand, we'll help you find something to get into that. But if you come in and, you know, you end up with a pink set of irons and Titleist fairy woods and a tailor-made driver and some Callaway wedges, like that's the goal. And none of that is changing. You know, Club Champion, club Champion sorry, is uh, obviously a large retail chain in the United States Gone through a lot of expansion, and for us, we're in Toronto. We have, a lot of people are very familiar with our, our social media presence and our YouTube presence. But you know, we are two locations, and we do have a full build shop, a full uh, manu- like manufacturing facility. It's not enormous, but we have a fairly large space that we build golf clubs in for people and send golf clubs essentially all over North America and the world. So, we've always wanted to continue to grow, and this partnership helps us with that.
0: All right, so. What we're going to be talking about today is sort of to the side of what TXG's club fitting business is really about. You know, TXG fits people into new products. We're going to be talking about a much cheaper way to engage with uh, golf equipment, looking for used clubs and kind of getting into the history of these clubs and hunting for deals and things like that. So that's where we're eventually going with this. But before we get into building a specific bag, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about some general trends in the equipment industry where you see things going zeroing in specifically on when you kind of started working in the equipment industry this was in the early 2000s mid 2000s
1: yeah roughly around i would say 2004 2005 and that would have been when i started in the like kind of the big box space and i joke with people now that it was like the the golden age of technology i know obviously Friday we always talk about or not we sorry you guys talk about the like the golden age of architecture right like the way things kind of were at a certain time and I joke with people of my own age being 35 now that for me growing up like that was the golden age of like technology advancements like I remember the first 400cc driver the first 460cc driver the first adjustable driver nowadays like direct to consumer brands offer adjustable drivers they're, they're everywhere. It's something you can just readily get. It's, it's not even, it's not even a second thought at this point that you can go in and find something that's going to be adjustable with your driver and your fairy woods and all of those different, even hybrids at this point. But back then that was a massive leap. And I can remember all those different elements coming into play and people would come in and it was just like, this is insane. Like, how does this work?
0: That's why I'm particularly interested in talking about the early 2000s. So like 2000 to 2005, we're going to kind of focus on that period quite a bit in this episode, not exclusively, but but we're going to talk about that period specifically. Think about what happened in that era, you know, that basically the advent of the 460 CC titanium driver happened in that period there were big drivers before that but that's when it really became common and and mainstream for for drivers to be that size and to be made out of that material the popularization of the hybrid that was happening at around that time the introduction of the the solid core urethane cover ball so the pro v1 the pro v1x was 2003 the tour accuracy nike tour accuracy was before that like 1999 and and so what's happening in this period is is really interesting in the sense that it kind of set the stage for what's happening now right what what's happening now is in many ways just an elaboration of what was going on in that period and uh, you know also from a from a general perspective what you saw in that era was much faster product cycles right because if if you think about the 975D driver from Titleist that was introduced in 1998 and it stayed on the shelves for a while.
1: Yeah, it, it just hung around. Like that was that was probably yeah. the biggest change that I saw in the industry. And you know, I think companies have really started to to change that method. You know, we saw around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when they realized that okay, maybe we shouldn't try and sell three, four different drivers a year and try and come up with a new product quarterly or whatever, uh, because at that point, right, there was not that there was less advancement, but people were like, okay, well, I'm starting mm-hmm. to kind of. Realize that maybe fitting is probably the better option than just trying to buy something new every time. And-,
0: yeah. and and to put a finer point on it, in the 80s and 90s, companies would keep a certain product on the shelf as as their iron or their driver for a long period of time, in, in some cases for years. Right, the the Ping I2 irons. My understanding is that that was Ping's like sort of lead iron for. More than a decade, it maybe wa-
1: it was. It was the Ping I two lasted for more than a decade as the, as their uh, premium product. Now it did go through some different iterations. Like you can see different uh, patent numbers and, and soul sole grinds. So there was the I two. So as the golf ball advanced, they started offering stronger lofts. So that anything you see a plus is the I two with different grooves and different shapes. Like they did always tune them, but that was it. It was like you know there wasn't the the consumer demand for new 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 all the time and you know we see that now with with phones and computers and and anything that's technology driven there's this greater desire to have something that's new and you know that's consumer driven that's that's company driven that's oem driven did i do i need a new computer no but i want a new computer because it's got a nicer camera and it's got a a keyboard that does something different and there's that element of golfers that want stuff, and then there's the golfers that you know I just want to go out. I want to have fun with my friends and I'm not really too concerned about equipment and and those people exist like coexist fantastically in the golf industry
0: and then it sounds like from something you said earlier that maybe around two thousand seven two thousand eight companies actually backed off that a little bit, that it got to a point where New models were coming out so quickly that there started to be a problem with kind of oversaturating the market and And since then we've seen a little bit of a pullback there
1: yeah the the industry was driven by people buying off of I want it now going into a store and, and immediately walking out with a set of golf clubs. Again, talking about those times when I was working in, in the big box retail, I won't name the company, uh, but you know we would get a couple times a year a pallet, like, you know, it seemed like Costco at the time, a pallet of golf clubs. So we're talking 60, 70 sets of irons, half regular flex, half stiff flex steel, standard grips, kind of basically just in a box. And they'd be maybe a couple of years old. They'd show up on middle of the week, receiver would get them. You would put them right at the the front lead of the aisle. They'd be in a flyer and people would walk in and go, oh, where's the 499 set of irons? And you point down and they go, thanks. And they'd grab the box and they'd walk out. There was no fitting. There was no, none of that stuff because that was just the way people perceive buying golf going. It's like, I am stiff steel. I'm regular steel. Let's get out of here and let's go, let's go play some golf. But even I think all of the OEMs driven by ping from kind of basically when they started, thanks to Karsten is, is fitting, 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 fitting. And you see that now. So if you walk into a big box store, you probably see a lot more clothing now than you do floor space for golf equipment because they're not carrying the inventory because they want you to get fit. And, In that time period, as the cycle was increasing and increasing, you could, I mean, not to blame the guy. I mean, he revolutionized the industry. But Sean Toulon, who was working for TaylorMade at the time, basically said, we're not going to come up with one driver. We're going to come up with three drivers. The 300 series, which was the 300, 320, and 360. And at the time... 360 was again a massive looking golf club and they said that's going to be a flop like that big one no one's going to want it and what happened it was the number one selling driver by a massive margin because it was more forgiving and people immediately went why do i want the 300 cc one this is ridiculous this is this is like my old driver i want the big one i want the quote unquote toaster on the stick because people it's all their pride if they hit the drive 250 yards you know it's always the benchmark number for a lot of people and That set a revolution off for every OEM, most, not every, but a lot of OEMs. It's like, wow, like if we and it was a custom fitting story as well, because, you know, you want workability, you want forgiveness. And that set off the industry of, you know, we got to give people, if they want options, we can give them options and producing overseas and all those things kind of led to that perfect storm, I think of what was 2008.
0: So what are you, what do you think are some of the biggest things that have changed between say 2008, since we just mentioned that year, and now in the equipment industry,
1: the the two biggest things would be adjustable hosels and adjustable weighting in drivers. And we see it now too. With again, we are at a point where most companies are releasing say two to three drivers to fit different uh, customers. But I think it's it's much more it's much better in the sense of the way they're doing it because it used to be you know you have one driver and it would come in three different loft options. So a store would have to carry all those. Now you have something where you have a draw bias driver, uh, more of a player's driver and like a super forgiveness driver. For most companies, you'll see like a three, two to three model options for most OEMs. And then from there, you have adjustability, you have adjustable weight. And all of a sudden you're dialing people in to these products a lot better. And I think those are the biggest things is the the adjustability element. And then at this point now, it's the manufacturing side of things. The ability to... Uh, cast extremely thin, forge and weld, and and get into these products. There's no, there's very little, almost zero wasted uh, mass inside of a clubhead to create mass properties. Whereas if you ever cut open an old driver like a Warbird or something like that, there's a lot of stuff going on in there that you know is just there because it has to be because that's just what happened.
0: It's more of a solid hunk of metal. Those clubs,
1: very much. So I've talked to people that worked at Callaway kind of during that time and like you know how difficult it was to. You no, know, the because those drivers, when they came out, were also very expensive. The Great Big Bertha was considered an enormous driver at the time.
0: Yeah, it was what it was. Was it 250?
1: I think it was around 250 cc's. And that was the biggest Big Bertha. That was the biggest one you could possibly buy.
0: I remember when the Great Big Bertha came out because I was about 11 and I was really into golf at the time. That driver looked huge and it was very expensive. There was no way I was going to be able to buy it.
1: Hugely expensive. Yeah. And, and that was like me with the, I like the ping ISI like tech. That was the next one that came after the ISI it was huge. I knew somebody at the golf course where I played, had one and it sounded loud. And I was like, Se- $700. I'm a 50 year old kid. That's like, <laughs> yeah. and what's that? What's that? I mean, like three years worth of salary. I don't know. Like yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, lot there, lot was no, there was no, no parallel line for me to that. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how I got into gear because I, you know, I wanted to figure out the best way possible and taking things apart was just kind of part of it. And the other thing too, which I should have mentioned, as far as technology is concerned, launch monitors, we see them on the PGA tour. That is literally the biggest advancement other than equipment. If you didn't have a launch monitor, you didn't understand the data, you just looking at ball flight, like the ability to tune equipment now is thanks to that stuff. You know, that's, that's really probably the best answer when it comes to equipment is launch monitors and then everything else. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean what do you have when you're when you're getting a fitting? It's all based on the launch monitor and the information that's coming out of that. And then it's up to the fitter to use the adjustability of these new clubs to find the right combination for the individual player. And I should mention that I find all of this fascinating, but I also find it somewhat disturbing <laughs> because the the equipment has gotten so good in many ways there's not a way to put the genie back in the bottle. And I am concerned for golf courses.
1: I I always say that I I, I ride a very fine line. I ride a tightrope with this because I do see both parts of it. You know, part of me wants to see the best players in the world play events with persimmon and half sets. And we see it with the wishbone event that they hold. I think Link's Soul holds it at Goat Hill Park where they have the pros and they play with persimmons and things like like that's so cool because like, you know, they miss it a little bit. You hear someone like Jeff Ogilvy talk about No, if you neck one, it goes 220. Like that's just the nature of like what happens when you use that equipment. And I have bags of persimmon equipment. I love playing with old equipment. But I also understand and know that when I see golfers come into a fitting and they're hitting their driver 200 yards or 220 yards, and they all of a sudden they hit it 245 yards, that is hugely helpful and beneficial to them with new equipment. Just say 25, 30, maybe 40 years ago at this point – you walk into a store, the only clubs you're going to get were blades. Like that was it. And whether you were a beginner golfer or a, a pro, like you're using blades and now pros use blades, some low handicap amateurs use blades, but the amount of technology that's in golf clubs to help people enjoy the game, I think is massively beneficial to the, the, the biggest part of the bell curve when it comes to golfers. What we're seeing is though, is this technology that when it comes to the professional level and the high level, like we saw at Kapalua recently, scoring records broken, not once, not twice, but three times in one day basically at basically the end of the event that there's something up. And I know the golf course can be soft and, you know, people will joke that the greatest advancement in golf courses is, is the lawnmower because of consistency and roll and role in all those different things, but they're hitting it so freaking far. And part of that is because the technique has changed with the equipment. You can't swing like you can with a persimmon driver, I know because I've tried. <laughs> you can't hit three degrees up and three degrees out to try and smash this draw at swinging full out. Because if you hit it half an inch off center, it's going to go 180 yards and duck hook. Whereas if you do it with a modern driver, you're just down the left side of the fairway.
0: There's a lot that I agree with there. I think the place where we might disagree or just have a slightly different point of emphasis is when we talk about fun and the modern average golfer. Because, you know, you and I both remember the before times, so to speak, the times before the Pro V1, before the titanium 460cc driver. I remember that people had a lot of fun playing golf in the 90s, and it was players of all abilities who had fun. I'm not sure I see evidence that those same players are having more fun now. Do you think equipment advances since the mid 2000s? or even before that, I guess maybe we should put the market like 1999. Do you think the equipment advances since then have made the game more fun for the average player?
1: I think they make it more. Yes, I do. I do believe it. Like, And again, I, my default, because I'm close to this person all the time is I, is my dad. My dad started playing when I started getting it. He always played, but he never played as much as when I got into playing golf. Cause it was like a thing that he could do with me. And so we would go out and play or he dropped me off and go play or whatever. And before then he never like played in the golf league. He never did any of those things. And I can remember helping him get fit, like really get fit for a set of golf clubs. And, you know, he doesn't practice really that much. Um, his back or elbow can bug him once in a while. And all of a sudden it's like, I don't have to work as hard to, not that he would always shoot a, like X score all the time, but like just because if I miss hit a shot, it wouldn't hurt as much. That's a big element. Where, you know, if you hand someone just swinging a really heavy golf club that has a stiff shaft and hits it off the toe of a blade, that's going to sting a lot. So I think that that side of it is where, like, the fun element can make it easier for people versus the always focusing on the score because it is the experience of playing. And in many cases, if you can hit a golf club that doesn't hurt to hit, then that can be a big proponent of, like, a big component of being able to have fun just being out there with your friends.
0: Not being in pain.
1: Not being in pain, literally literally not being in pain, having soft grips on golf clubs, all of those things where, no, they weren't always an option can be the fun element of just being out there and enjoying the game as a whole. And I think equipment helps with that, but I don't think for depending on your level or depending on how you want to enjoy the game, you can go and play with persimmon and blades and I know a bunch of sickos that like to do that just like myself. And, you know, I remember your podcast with the Hickory Open, (laughs) like, those are like, those are the serious that goes there. Right. And their way of enjoying the game is to have it like exist in a certain era for them or whatever people want to play it. And know if it means doing that and, you know, having a stinging shot once in a while, that's okay. But for a lot of people, it just means going out with their friends and and making some shots a little bit easier.
0: Yeah. Fun as always is a a very complicated topic in golf and, and, and quite subjective. Um, Obviously, the discussion of of whether there should be new club regulations and whether they should apply to only pros or apply across the board to everybody in golf deserves its own podcast. We don't need to keep going down that rabbit hole right now. Um, I'd like to start to push us toward building a bag of used clubs, but just to kind of clarify one part of why we're doing this right now, people are having some trouble getting a hold of new clubs.
1: So I again I will I'll, I'll keep my I'll keep names out of it when it comes to companies but there are companies that are struggling with getting product to the point where there are almost un, unknown lead times which is pretty insane uh, because of manufacturing because of logistics like ports all of these different things even materials that makes it difficult for us and for everybody in the industry I get emails and, and messages all the time of like you know how long would this take if I get it or how long are those kind of things? Certain clubs, like you're get, like they'll be here in June, and that's that's just the nature of the beast across the board, and you know that applies to you know I I drive by car dealerships every day, and there's a car dealership in my couple of car dealerships they have four cars in the lot used to having not maybe close to a hundred, and it's because of material shortages whether it be like a single part or something like that, and we've seen it with with grips and shafts and club heads across the board, uh, everyone's doing their best. Some companies have started express flying product over which becomes more expensive it's all part of a cost that adds up so we see these equipment costs rise cuz people want them sooner and uh just like because of those things you know it is becoming more expensive and it's it's just across the board difficult
0: and and you know so one thing i believe is that the best way to get the best the best equipment for your game if you're looking at finding that edge if if you're really interested in and having the the best tools possible at your disposal, getting fit for new equipment is is obviously the way to go, but it is an expense. And so I was interested in looking at another way of engaging with equipment. There's there's a different way to do that and you don't have to spend a whole lot of money doing it. Um, And that's kind of looking at the used club market. And by the way, these days, when you buy a used club on on eBay or on one of the Used club outlets online, it'll arrive pretty quickly. there's There's no particular delay for used clubs. They're already there.'re They're, they're going to get sent to you. And so that's maybe part of the appeal right now of of this particular hobby. Um, what, what are some of your tips for hunting for cool used clubs? what What are some kind of general techniques that people can use if uh, if they're doing this?
1: Yeah. My, my quick list would be looking at, uh, the ferrules, which is like the little plastic part between the head and the shaft. If they all match on a set of golf clubs, it means that they were probably never reshafted. If something was broken at some point, one of those might mismatch, which is always an easy thing to spot. Um, and then asking for length. A lot of times, I mean, I've, I've literally made the mistake of going into a used club store, buying a set. They were like bundled up. They were a good deal. I walked out and I got home and I was like, these things are an inch over length. I didn't even check. Like what an like just stupid mistake to make. So I, those little things where you can just ask those small questions. If you can ask for the lie angle of the golf club, In some cases, most forged golf clubs and some cast golf clubs can be bent fairly easily. And, and almost at no cost, if you're buying them from a lot of stores, they'll just, they'll do it for you. That's not a huge issue. And then grip condition is the other one. Um, You know, if you want to go through the expense of of getting new grips, you can, a lot of times you can wash them and they do freshen up quite quickly, but it's, it's looking at the little things where it comes to like larger rock dings, when it comes to irons or wedges, you can see those really quickly. Uh, But it's the ferrule, it's any bends in a, a steel shaft, if you can see it, most sellers will let you know if there is any issues, most of the time there's not, and then grip condition as well. So those are the big kind of like really quick things to look for, and if you have them in person and you're not sure, just ask about the lie angle because that is something that is, is crucial. Um, even if it's, cl- if, it's clo- if it's way off, you're going to be in big trouble. At least if it's like close, you're going to just enjoy it so much better.
0: Before Ryan and I get into building our bags, I'd like to say a quick word about Friday egg events. Our first three events opened for registration on January 3rd and all of those are currently sold out. But a new batch of events will become available for signups on February 7th. That's Monday, February 7th. One of those events will be The Banker at Dorna Hills Country Club. Dornock Hills is a pretty special place. It was Perry Maxwell's first design. In fact, he built it on his property. And it was sort of his laboratory for architecture ideas before he went on to design prairie dunes, southern hills, and The other great courses that are on his resume. Just last year, Dornick Hills was restored by Tom Doak and his team, and it looks incredible. So that's the venue for The Banker, which will take place on June 6th and will open for registration on February 7th on thefriday.com. All right, back to the episode. So each of us researched two bags. Bag one is what you might call an optimal set of used clubs for a total of less than $750. That was the number that we kind of set ourselves, right? We got to stay under this price for the full set of clubs. Bag two is a set of used clubs from before 2005. So clubs that were released before 2005, and we set a price of $400 for this total set of clubs. Each bag has a driver, a fairway wood, a hybrid, a set of irons, two or three specialty wedges, and a putter. We used eBay as a reference point for prices just to make things easy while avoiding sketchy sellers on eBay who are pretty easy to spot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if, the ch- if the shipping charge is $100, then don't don't deal with that seller. But we basically looked at eBay for these prices. Um, clubs in decent condition. This, this is one thing that I kind of, you know, yeah, you can get some clubs for really, really cheap. But if there are sky marks on the fairway wood, I don't really want it you know i don't necessarily want junk and so i'm looking for things that are in like fairly nice condition you know 7 out of 10 8 out of 10 somewhere around there we're choosing clubs that were just that they're just suited to our games right and you mentioned earlier you're at, you're like a mid single digit handicap You've gained some speed lately. <laughs> you've been you've been doing some some speed training, so you're a pretty strong player. Uh, I'm a very average player, you know somewhere around a 10 handicap, very average swing speed, 100 miles per hour or so. And so it, we're not going to speculate about what an average golfer wants because everybody's different and so we figured might as well just find stuff that would suit us. All right, so why don't we get started? Uh, let's dive in. Let's start with the driver. So for the for the sub $750 set, what I picked, and, and I'll explain this in a second, is the Srixon Z785 from just a couple of years ago, 2018. So I, basically, I was looking at the $750 budget and thinking, where do I want to spend my money? And I, I thought, I want to spend it on driver and wedges, getting some nice, clean wedges and getting a driver that's fairly up to date. And this driver is $200 right now on the used market. And, and so that that's where I think I'd go. Um, where were you at for for your driver on this?
1: Yeah, so uh, for myself, um, you know, being the club nerd, this is kind of a game that I used to play all the time just because I could, because that's what happens. Um, I actually had two options, but I will go with the the Titleist 910. So a little bit older. Um, for my set, I wanted two fairy woods. So I, I, I stretched the budget on the driver a little bit. But in most cases with the Titleist 910 driver, it offers adjustability. It has a couple different models. So there's the D, D2 and the D3. So you can, D3 is a little lower spinning, a little smaller D2. But I found a Titleist 910 D3 with a stock shaft, which the Titleist ones have in that era had some really good options.
0: Great stock shafts. Yeah, That that's the big appeal of the Titleist Woods, by the way.
1: So they're not like the same aftermarket, but I like from I I, I actually worked for Titleist during this uh, this era for uh, like a, a season, so I, I'm quite familiar with the product, and I was I love I love this driver. I always thought it was a really good driver, and because it offers adjustability, that to me is my was my go to for the where the driver was the nine ten D three.
0: All right, going to pre two thousand five for driver, my choice was the Ping G two, and this has an I think it's pronounced Aldila. Yep. aldela aldela uh stock shaft which, which is a good stock shaft it's 55 bucks this is a 460 cc driver so it almost feels like cheating for this category to to choose this one because it is effectively a modern driver um i know this one would be would be pretty effective so what did you go with for for pre-2005
1: g2 is a freaking great driver i had one of those things i loved it um I actually went with, uh, because I was, again, I was trying to work with two fairy woods and I, I like irons. Irons is always like a big, like I'm, I kind of nerd on irons a lot. So I went with the Cleveland launcher 400. So 400 CCs, still pretty big. The the 400 came out around and the, the Cleveland launcher comp came out just after that time. And actually those are, those still go for a lot of money. Uh, but I got this driver for like $45 with uh, getting a lot of diff- like the, I think it had a Vista pro, like a Fujikura shaft in it. Really good driver. I had a friend who had one of these. He used one of these things for almost a decade. So uh, another driver I'm very familiar with that's well under the fifty dollars price range.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the other pre two thousand five candidates I was looking at. There's the Cleveland Launcher series, and it got up to four sixty eventually. But those were those were great drivers. The Titleist nine eighty three K, which is definitely smaller than four sixty, because I believe the first four sixty Titleist driver was maybe two thousand five itself, with the the nine oh five R. Is that right?
1: You got it. Yeah. There was the, the 905 S and T, which came before, uh, they were both 400 CC drivers and then the R kind of snuck up there and all of a sudden they released the 460 version of it.
0: And that, and that's a super usable driver now too. <laughs> the 905 R. Yeah. That's I a mean,
1: classic. That's a, that was the one Adam Scott used for a very, very long time with a ProForce V2. I think Adam Scott sold a lot of ProForce V2 shafts back in the day. Thanks to that driver.
0: This, was a, this is an interesting era for drivers because they were changing so, so quickly and, and really racing toward their modern profile when you look at them down by the ball. When you see a 905R, it looks maybe a little more sleek than most of the drivers you see today. Um, of course, this is, 905R is not within our date range because it, it is 2005 instead of pre. But you look at it and you think, like, that, that's basically a modern driver but if you went 5 years before that the drivers would look a lot smaller to the modern eye most of the ones that were coming up from OEMs at the time
1: hugely different yeah and i think that that's because where that 2000 2005 era is such a uh, a vastly like huge kind of almost a vacuum but this big space of what was there before and what came after it was almost like pre-color tv and then all of a sudden color tv and you're like whoa I was missing all of this stuff in the past. I mean, you can still enjoy it, but you know, it's a big difference and a big leap forward. And yeah, that's, that was the, again, it came after, but that was a fantastic driver.
0: All right. Fairway woods, sub seven fifty bag. I went with the ping G 10 three wood. I believe this came out in 2007, $70, uh, with a, with a ping stock shaft. I think ping usually has pretty good stock shafts and, uh, I could use this club day to day. Um, I I also just generally hit fairway woods from this era, maybe a little bit better than modern fairway woods. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but I just feel like it's true. And I think fairway wood technology has changed in ways that haven't necessarily benefited maybe my particular delivery condition. I I don't exactly know what's going on, but I just love fairway woods from this era. And and I, I feel like I can use them almost more effectively than the new product.
1: The the G10 was such a great uh, fairy wood. It was really shallow. There was a G10. It was one of the first times I think Ping introduced a draw model. Uh, I thought it was shallow, very, very easy to hit. And uh, that was kind of when there was a little bit beforehand, but miraging steel started getting used. Not that it was used in that model, but a lot of carpenter steel and stronger steels were used in fairy woods. And you started to see this bigger jump in performance again, not quite to the titanium level that we're seeing now, but Still a very playable driver, or sorry, very playable fairway wood. Um, for myself, I went with the, this is not quite, now the driver is synonymous with not being very forgiving. I love the fairway woods. I actually still have a number of these fairways kicking around. And I got like this because I went less on the driver. I actually got two of these fairway woods. And that's the TaylorMade SLDR. Now Oh, they're, God. Yeah. So <laughs> I would um, not be able to hit that fairway wood. I love it. They're so, they're, they really are. They're <laughs> small. They're pretty compact. They are adjustable as well.
0: Now, now you're you're a high spin player, right?
1: I, yeah, I don't have great delivery, okay. so I I naturally create <laughs> I, more I'm spin. I'm on the so opposite so side of the spectrum. Me. Yeah,
0: I, I can use help with spin. I think maybe that's part of why modern fairway woods don't really suit me because a lot of them are really low spin, and and I can use that spin to to get up in the air a little bit. But SLDR was was a low spin like bomber three wood, right? Uh,
1: yeah, it's like I had it until I had a driver, I had a fairway wood for like a number of years. And I, I, I tried that and I said, this is it. This is the, this is the, f-. I literally hit five golf balls with it. And I said, yep, I want to order one of these. And then I'll put a figure out shaft for it. Uh, and I played that for a very, very long time. I remember getting fit for any fairway when I brought it in, I said, good luck with this one guys, like have fun. And they beat it by a few yards and it was kind of interesting to see, but to know how good that thing was, like I, I talked to some of my club nerd friends and that's kind of still one of those, uh, models. Now there was a couple different versions. There was a, a later on, there was a, um, a glued hosel version. And then there was a C version, which was like a a less expensive version that came out in the marketplace. So you will see these different models. The prices will vary. But I found two of the adjustable SLDR fairways, the original ones for $90 a piece. And that kind of fit right into my budget of um, under that 750. And for me, like, again, I own them now. So I definitely go on eBay and and buy a couple more if I needed to.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. Pre-2005, what I went with uh, was the Sonar Tech. NP-99, four wood, all de la shaft, 30 bucks. Nice. It wasn't in great condition, but it wasn't in terrible condition. This is sort of a classic fairway wood. And uh, I thought of it because a few months ago, maybe, Andy from the Fried Egg, uh, the, the founder of the Fried Egg, posted something about Vince India's fairway wood, which is exactly this model. Sonar Tech, it's from 2004. Vince India, who is a Corn Fairy Tour player, has been on the podcast, is still playing this fairway wood. And what he said about it specifically is that I appreciate having a fairway wood that if I miss it to high toe, it's not going to go miles, you know. And and so I think that he, too, has maybe some trouble with with modern fairway woods, and, and he's still using this one that is, you know, 18 years old now. So I, I figured that that would, be, that would be an interesting way to spend $30. I might still get it.
1: That's a good one. Um, and any, anyone who's curious, like Tech has a really very interesting story in North America if you want to dive deep on that. I have not really really written anything on it, but it's a fascinating story. For me, I went with something that I consider an absolute cult classic, and that is the TaylorMade made V-steel. Oh, yeah. You can find them with all kinds of different shafts. You can find them with steel shafts as well. They're probably one of the last ones that offered a steel shaft kind of stock. Uh, I know someone who still has a five-wood in the bag. Like, looks really good, shaped really nicely. You know, the modern tailor made ferroids a couple of years ago, they kind of reintroduced the V steel sole because it was a popular design attribute. And for me, I can go back to one of those V steels. Might not be the most forgiving, but gosh, it looks good and it, it still performs quite well.
0: Yeah, V steel was on my list too. Um, other. Candidates that I saw were the uh, Orlamar Tri Metal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's from the late '90s. Uh, that's another kind of cult classic. And then any of the the titleless fairway woods from this era are are pretty pleasing. Um, they they definitely look a lot smaller than the modern fairway woods. There there is a kind of I think a kind of shock that you might feel if you're playing a fairway wood from the mid 2010s or later when you look at one of these from the mid 2000s. And and you think, okay, that looks like a really long shaft, and that looks like a small head at the end of it. But as I said before, I I haven't really had much trouble playing these older models of fairway woods, and in some ways, I have had some trouble with the uh, with you know kind of modern low spinning super bombing fairway woods. Um, and I, I wonder if you've noticed players having that problem in that spot in their bag
1: when it comes to fairway woods. Um, uh, 100%, I think some people struggle off the deck and larger woods can be an issue if someone's trying to lift the ball up, you know, they're not, they're not hitting necessarily down on it. I guess that's probably not the best way to describe it, but kind of a way to visualize it. Um, if,
0: if you're scooping a fairway wood, if you're trying to lift it, often what's going to happen is that it's going to dive left,
1: right? Yeah. You're, there's going to be yeah, no spin on it. Yeah. You're going to top it or it's going to like, you're going to hit this kind of like low running one to the left for a right-handed golfer. Um, when ping was developing the the blueprint irons which are their like tiny tiny small blade irons louis used tays and said like you know aim small miss small like those irons are some of the smallest on the market and that was something that they they kind of found through player testing was in some cases when they were deciding on the blade size smaller actually benefited the best players better because it offered them better turf interaction there's less soul and also they you know Aim small, miss small, kind of thing. Um, so I think that does apply to fairway woods as well.
0: All right, let's move on to hybrid. Um, th- this is another one where there are some cult classics in the uh, in the category. I think fairway wood is another one of those where you know in this kind of era that we're talking about, uh, from between ten years ago and twenty years ago, uh, there are a lot of clubs that people kind of feel nostalgic for. I think that's definitely true of, of the hybrids that that I was looking at. Um, so for the sub $750 bag, what I ended up finding was an Adams super hybrid XTD, um, 19 degrees uh, with an uh, what looked like a nice shaft in it uh, for $30. Um, and I, I feel like that, that would be a pretty smooth transition from modern hybrids. It came out in 2012. I'm not sure there would be much given up there.
1: The, you can see the lineage of like a lot of the hybrids from certain companies now moving forward because a lot of those engineers went to other companies. Uh, Chip Brewer, who works at Callaway, famously kind of made Adams what it is today. Uh, He was the CEO before he moved there. Um, And before he was there, like Adams was really not like they were small. They kind of had their niche. And all of a sudden, like their advancement of the hybrid was driven by their design uh, elements. And they did some ridiculously good stuff. Um, Again, I I stuck to another fair. I got a five wood, but my other option would be an Adams, um, just an Adams idea pro. They go for around $40 to $50. You've got to find one with like a fancy shaft or find some newer models. You can find them for, you know, that $50, $60. One of my favorites, I still own it, is the 9031. It's probably their smallest, least forgiving hybrid. It was a white one. It had a slot on the sole and the crown. Uh, That to me was probably like my favorite hybrid. You can find those for next to nothing online. Um, Definitely under the the budget of the $90 fairy wood that I had for the five wood. So, uh, Adams is, when it comes to that era, it's almost impossible to beat unless you're looking for something maybe with some adjustability, but even, and then you can find some tailor-made stuff, but, um, Adam is really hard to beat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I associate Adams with hybrids, uh, from this period for sure. And it's, it's a company that, I mean, they've, they've kind of reemerged in a different form, but, uh, it was a company that was defunct for a while basically and so people don't know as much about it, which means that the clubs maybe have a little bit less value on the used market, but they're, they're still really playable, really excellent clubs. For the pre-2005 hybrid, I went with a, a Nikent Gen X 3DX Ironwood at 20 degrees. Uh, that's 20 bucks. Um, so that's super cheap. But Nikent is another one of these companies that isn't active now, I don't think, right? They went, they went kaput.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote a deep dive story at Golf Direct about the that's right, the, yeah. the death of Nikent, which was I mean, it was a fascinating story. They offered a lot of really cool stuff, um, and yeah, I mean, to go with a hybrid, I, I literally can't not agree with the going with the Nikent because I, I had one, I had a lot of stuff. If I if I, if we start playing this game, <laughs> I'd, like I'd say I own <laughs> most of these things at some point, um, but the Nikent would be the one for me because it uh, it was the hybrid that like was everywhere and offer it's still very forgiving for what it was and what it is, and yeah, hard to beat for the price.
0: All right, let's go to the iron sets. Uh, for the sub $750 bag, I just found a, a set of Ping G15 irons, four iron through gap wedge um, for $255. Now, I don't have any particular opinions about the G15 iron specifically, but I think that Ping G irons throughout their existence i'm not sure when the first ping g iron was but i feel like they've been around since at least the turn of the century i feel like every iteration of that iron has been really playable for a huge range of players i'm not normally somebody who would who would use a super game improvement iron but the ping g irons appear to me to be perfectly playable very forgiving um, I've played with Ping G5 irons before. Those are from 2005, and I love those. And I, I, I feel like, you know, it, there's just a certain magic to them where you wouldn't be surprised to see them in a 25 handicaps bag, and you wouldn't be surprised to see them in a, in a five or, or lower handicaps bag. There's something about what they do with that kind of club.
1: Yeah, they've, they've done a really good job with the G series. I think the G2 was the first one around, that 2002 mark, and then the G5 came out. The Actually, I mean, KJ Choi used G15s, I'm pretty sure, because he's a very shallow player, needed spin, needed something to get up in the air. So um, that was one that, again, that's a tour player. <laughs> um, so they, they, that's a great set of irons. Um, for myself, I did find a number of irons in the 200 to $250 price point. One trick, and you mentioned it with Nikent and kind of with the Tech earlier, look for brands that either don't exist or might be kind of under the radar as far as equipment is concerned. I went with a set of Nike Pro Combos. Oh, yeah. The the original ones or the the next gen, if you get into the VR stuff, it gets a little bit more expensive still. But if you can find a set of those original, and there's a lot of them out there, around 200 bucks, Nike Pro Combos, Ford set, combo set, lovely. <laughs> Hard to yeah, say. Yeah, those are really cool looking. And uh, they, they don't have any badges, so they, they don't really wear too poorly like some other stuff you might find. Uh, and for me, that was, that was really hard to beat. I found those and they were right around $200. I, I, I try and stick to budget cause like the driver and fairwoods and irons, you can kind of pick and choose for me. Like, you know, there's a lot of irons in that player's cavity around that sub 200 or $250 price point. Uh, so that's what I went with that. Cause the, for me, the wedges offered a couple different options and same with the putters. So.
0: Yeah. All right. Pre 2005 for irons. I went with uh tailor-made rack LT irons. Oh, that's good three through pitching wedge. And, uh, it, you know, I feel like these kind of rack LT, iron, there were a few different versions of the rack irons, right? And the rack LT, it seems to me, kind of occupied a category that's become a lot more popular recently, which is the cavity back iron that is aimed at uh, players who who strike the ball pretty consistently. So the, the so-called player's distance iron. And I think that the rack LT was sort of an example of that. Am I right?
1: Yeah, they were a player's cavity back. The cast, so the, the cost was a little lower. Uh, they had a, the tuning cartridge. The rack was like um, resident something, something frequency, whatever, cartridge in the back of the golf club. There's two versions. If, they, if you look at the LT, there's a badge on the back, like right in the back of the cavity. There's actually like almost like a little stickered badge. That's second gen. First gen had the cartridge still, but the LT was written on the hosel. Those are the more sought after ones. Both are great golf clubs. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I found them for two fifteen. I would imagine that they're not the, the sought after version if it's two fifteen for three, three pitching wedge, but they look pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I mean then even sought after that's probably the kind of the price point they fit in nowadays. If you look at those irons. Um, but they, they were great. Um, really, really good set of irons. Um, but for me, again, I had a couple options here. The one I'm going to go with just because and this is, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to lie angle, this is very easy to find out because Ping has their color code chart, was the I3 blades, the original ones. I found a set for roughly $150. Oh, um, wow. That was an asp- Like They were, you could, they kind of fluctuated a little bit. That was on the higher point of like what I wanted to go with for the irons, you know, checking with our budget. But uh, you could definitely find them for $150. There were sets that were more money, but a forward pitching wedge set offered that, Price point and ping irons, especially that era, were almost bulletproof. So it's nice to be able to find those and, and have them in pretty good shape. So that's what I went with. And again, lie angle, you can see the color code on them, very easy to identify. So for a lot of people when you are buying used, ping are very popular for irons because it's easy to identify. You know, I, I got fit for this lie angle. It's easy to go And if you're looking at the used market to find something in that same lie angle.
0: So wedges, I, I did an interesting thing with the wedges in that for the, the sub $750 set, I decided to just get the newest wedges possible because, you know, I don't like the idea of buying a set of wedges that has, where the grooves have worn down and, and where it just looks like they're not crisp anymore. And so what I actually found was two wedges, a 54 and a 60 Mizuno MPT5 wedges, and they're mint condition for $70 a piece. And so I just devoted a little more of my budget to getting those wedges. Um, but my thought with the wedges is that you just want to get a, a kind of nice crisp pair of wedges and, and, you, and you don't want to go super bargain basement on these. In my opinion,
1: I, I agree. I think wedge spin is important when you're playing, um, for a lot of different reasons. And so, um, getting as new as possible or in best shape as possible. The nice thing is the wedges is a lot of times it's easy to find things in pretty good shape when, because it's, uh, in most cases, it's not a sexy golf club. No one's bragging about the distance they got. It's like, oh, you wouldn't believe I, I hit 9,000 spin on my sand wedge when I hit a full one from 50 yards. No one's really bragging about that. So um, there's there's a lot of good value when it comes to finding wedges like the T5. I um, So I have two options here, and I want to make sure I say them both. The first would be Nike Engage wedges, mm-hmm. ones that I really liked. I have a, number of, I have a set of them. Um, but the one that I think people need to keep in mind uh, maybe not all the OEMs are going to like that I say this. Either way, if they even bother listening to this, but uh, when it comes to n- new product, I actually went with new wedges as well. I own a set of these. I work in the golf industry. I purchased a set of these my own cash money um, is a set of Kirkland wedges. So you get a gap wedge, a sandwich, a lob wedge. In Canada, I believe they are one fifty nine. So I think in the United States they're one twenty nine. So one twenty nine for a gap wedge, sandwich, lob wedge, wide sole, forgiving golf club, standard true temper wedge shaft, a velvet grip brand new grooves on these things if you're not particular about wedge grinds which i don't think a lot of people might be if they know they're trying to get into it you literally can't go wrong with these things it's uh it's pretty ridiculous so that's that's why i went a little off menu on this so you know pick up a jar of mayo and a hot dog while you're at it uh you'll probably still be (laughs) under your budget and, and i'd say some kirkland wedges for sure
0: yeah yeah, no, I agree with that approach. Uh, I think that you know, just trying to find the best deal possible on wedges is, is probably not the way to go. Wh- which means that searching for pre two thousand five wedges is uh, sometimes an exercise in futility because you're you're not going to necessarily find the the nicest stuff. But uh, what I ended up finding was uh, a pair of uh, Cleveland CG ten wedges, fifty two and fifty eight, um, and that was for fifty four dollars total. And this is just kind of a, you know, if you try to envision a Cleveland wedge, then that's basically what this is. This was really when kind of specialty wedges were becoming a big deal, right? That that was another thing that happened in the early 2000s where this market for specialty wedges, and I think I, I associate Cleveland most with this category in that period, that's when that whole thing was sort of emerging, right?
1: Yeah, there was like the Vokey 200s around the same time period, which were very popular. The 588s had... Started to get into different finishes and different grinds. I, much like yourself, when it comes to the value under like pre-2005, I went with uh, two Cleveland 588 RTGs, like just the raw wedges. Yeah. The raw wedges, they don't look like they're with chrome wedges or other finished wedges. They might look more worn out, but they're actually not. If you're looking for something that is might be a little rusty, but actually is probably in pretty good shape, raw wedges are, are the way to go. Um, so the RTG 588s are classic wedge. They made them for a, much to your point. And we talked earlier, they had those in line for a very, very long time. We we're talking probably close to a decade. And if you're looking for value, you're looking for a classic shaped wedge pre 2005, that's, that's going to be my go-to every day of the week.
0: All right. Putter category. I went cheap here because, you know, I, I think uh, <laughs> putter is extremely subjective. You might find one from 1967 that that works the best for you. There are a lot of options today for, for new putters. And I think that that's maybe the main difference between today and back then, but you just never know what you're going to get along with. Putting is so much about feeling about mood and and just about confidence. And so um, for the sub $750 set, I just found a Cleveland classic one putter, which is an answer style putter uh, from 2009 and it was $55 in, in really nice condition and I feel like I could take that out to the course and, and be successful with it.
1: That that was a great putter line. Uh, Cleveland has always offered really good value in their their line of putters, uh, in the classic line, even now. Um,
0: so what did you go with for uh, for the sub seven hundred and fifty dollar set putter?
1: This was one that I, I always really liked. This is it's a it's a brand that is very familiar with a lot of people, and it's the Odyssey White Hot Tour. So the White Hot Tour is very specific. It was around, I want to say, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Could be, I'm off, might be off by a couple of years.
0: Was it kind of like darker colored, like yellow, maybe yellow writing on it or something like yeah, that?
1: Yeah, bingo, you nailed it. So it was a, it was a, a darker finish because that was a thing that they were doing with the tour players the year before. So they brought that tour look to it. So it was like a flamed finish to make the metal darker. The insert was a little firmer, and they had. They started to get into these heavier head weights—not crazy heavy like we see now, but a lot of different head shapes. I just found I think it was a number one to so like an answer style. Um, but this was something where I got it. Actually, I got this for like sixty bucks in uh, very good shape. So it was, I think I was I was well under my budget when it came to everything. Um, and again, if pe- people are looking at this this kind of category, there's a number of options within those models within that that uh, that specific brand specific brand sorry that are easy to kind of locate and track down.
0: All right, so you were well under your budget for the $750 set. I think I was literally right at $750, but uh, I, I need to, <laughs> once we finish talking, I need to go back and actually add it all up again. I probably should have done that before we started <laughs> talking, but uh, so it goes. Um, for the pre 2005 putter, you know, I, I was just sort of casting about randomly. I didn't really know where to go with this one because I don't know about many putters from the early 2000s, really. I mean, obviously, you can you can just go get an old answer or something like that. and It'll probably be just fine or or a ping zing putter. That would probably be just fine if you if you have a sort of arcing stroke and you you like that look of putter. But I thought the the the, the tailor-made rasa line was pretty interesting and the the Monza in particular it's a it's a mallet and um, you can see kind of how Taylor made sort of gradually developed from the Monza which was this mallet that had a few kind of weights back in it to what's now the spider which is a very popular putter all over the world and and on tour even where there's this kind of extreme you know sort of putting the weight back as far as possible in order to increase the stability of the of the club but this was kind of one of the first sort of attempts to do that and you can see how it evolved from this monza putter to what we now know as the spider
1: yeah and i mean that was something where they were working with some new inserts at the time and trying some different things and uh yeah i thought that was a really it's again that, that cagey look at the time was like you know very unusual looking but now we we're kind of used to almost putters looking like anything at this point. Anything that helps to get in the hole. Um, me, I'm a classic guy. I like something that is very more traditional, more blade style. And I actually kind of we'll call it split the difference between what you mentioned, which was the Zing and the the Answer. I went with a My Day. Oh so anyone, yeah. So the, the My Day is a Zing head which has the like, curved back to it with but with the Plumber's Answer neck. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with that style. It is called the My Day. A lot of people are more familiar with it as being known as like the one that Brad Faxon used. The title is Style. So he went from a My Day to a, a custom made Scotty Cameron and used that putter for a very long period of time. And that's one that I've always liked. And you no, I wanted to go. I want to go a little off menu from the answer because I could. You could find a million answers online for under forty dollars. Yeah. And I found mine. My Zing Bronze. I got a bronze one. One of the like manganese. The, my,
0: the my Day. You mean?
1: Yes, the My Days. So I went with the manganese bronze My Day. Forty bucks. Hard to beat. Okay. I mean,
0: the ping putters are. They they figured it out with the answer, you know, like decades ago, and people are still using that model of putter very very effectively. That's that's why the putter category is 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 so interesting. Is that certain ideas are are really really durable?
1: The Mon's idea was crazy at the time, and now we see these big spider models. The answer at the time, people were call them crazy, and it's yeah. The they most, thought they were ugly. They thought it was just the most ridiculous thing. No one's ever going to use it, and it became the most iconic putter ever made.
0: It's funny how in the late 60s, tour players thought of the answer as being really ugly. And now we think of the answer as being a blade putter.
1: I can remember when the two ball came out and everyone goes, that is the ugliest, weirdest, craziest looking thing I've ever seen. It was the number one selling putter. One of, I think, individual model, like almost ever. I know the answer obviously goes back for a long period of time, but that style basically opened up an entire new market for putter shapes. Yeah,
0: two ball came out first in maybe two thousand one.
1: It was because I think Annika Sorenstam used one when she shot fifty nine. It took a took a little longer to to get into the the play the pros' bags because everyone thought it was like more of a game improvement putter. Um, but it was everywhere, absolutely everywhere.
0: To tie this back to the theme of all the stuff that happened in the early part of this century in the equipment business, the early two thousands is really when you started to see these new mallet shapes coming onto the market. And you started to see tastes shifting about it. People starting to accept that this could be a putter and it happened pretty quickly because, you know, 2004, the ping, uh, it's called a crazy, just a psycho looking putter as weird as anything that is on the market today. And, and that was out there being bought and used. And, and so I think that in that, in that period, in that first part of the decade, things just shifted really quickly in the putter category, just as they were shifting in the driver category and elsewhere in the equipment business. And it really set up what, what we see today.
1: I think because, because the the equipment industry was booming so much back then, you know, designers were willing to take a chance because the cycles were a little slower or sorry, quicker, pardon me. And because of that, it was like, let's try these bigger putters. And you know, the crazy, for example, made web, Web Simpson and, and Kenny Perry, a lot of money. Um, and and same with drivers right a lot of people pre-2000 like i'm never using one of those big kind of tie it in right like i'm never going to use that it's too big and nowadays very few people are using a driver under maybe 450 but no no one's calling it a toaster on the stick anymore it's just a driver just the same way as a putter is like oh it's just a mallet putter it's not a crazy looking weird thing it's just a mallet putter designed to help you you know hopefully sink a few more putts or line up better at least
0: all right ryan uh where can people find you on social media
1: so I'm on Instagram and Twitter, RDS Brath. It's just uh, me, some golf clubs, and sometimes some pizza. And then uh, I also host a podcast with uh, Mike Marty Savich over at TXG. You can find us on the TXG podcast channel. We host the Build shop, so It's a weekly show where we break down equipment, kind of nerd out on stuff like this. We talk about old school stuff, stuff we used to use. Mike and I are about 10 years apart from each other. So our idea of classic equipment is a little different. Uh, but we talk about fitting with the goal to educate i mean just like you guys do and you do a fantastic job i've learned so much as far as the idea of golf course architecture and what it actually means and what it represents that we want to we're here to educate and hopefully make people smarter about their decisions because golf can be an expensive sport and we want people to to get the best value they possibly can and a lot of times that just means being educated and being knowledgeable
0: thanks so much ryan Thank you for listening to the Friday podcast. Just to give you some closure, my $750 bag came to exactly $750, and my pre-2005 bag was $399, just under the $400 cutoff. Ryan's sets were well under both of those marks. He's clearly better at this than I am. But just so you can visualize all this stuff a bit better, I'm going to make a post for this episode on thefriedegg.com with pictures of the clubs that we chose and all that stuff. This post should be up by the day after this episode comes out. So if you're an early listener, it might not be up yet, but it will be soon. All right. Cheers.